Hey, everybody. Welcome back to my channel. If you don't know who I am, my name is Allison, and this is the Devotional Hearts Show. And today, my guest is Julie Mastrine, and she is the twin sister of a guest I had on in December, Amy. And she's also the fiance of my most recent guest, episode 29, Jacob. So um, I'm really excited to get to know Julie's story because I, I already know Amy's and Jacob's. And I really don't know that much about Julie's, except that she is a writer and contributor for allsides.com. And if you don't know what that is, I'll, I will read you the about page. Um, All Sides strengthens our democratic society with balanced news, diverse perspectives, and real conversation. We expose people to information and ideas from all sides of the political spectrum so they can better understand the world and each other. Our balanced news coverage, media bias ratings, civil dialogue opportunities, and technology platform are available for everyone and can be integrated by schools, nonprofits, media companies, and more. So I'm fascinated by this topic. I think objectivity today and um, learning about how we can spot media bias is super important. So that's something we'll be talking about today. So without further ado, Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Allison. I'm so excited to be on. Um, it's exciting that you get to interview the whole family. I know. <laughs> I know. So as you know, on my show, I love to learn about people's conversion stories. So I'd love to start there. And then after that, let's talk a little bit about spotting media bias and what that has to do with objectivity, objective truth, and orthodoxy. So I'd love for you to just um, you know, a lot of a lot of the audience hasn't watched Amy's story. I know there's some overlap, but just um, tell us the whole story from beginning to present. Yeah, yeah. Amy and I are identical twins, so there's some parallels in the story um, and overlap, and then some things that are quite different. Um, so, I guess just starting from the very, very beginning, um, uh, I was raised Roman Catholic. Um, and I went to, you know, Sunday school or as Roman Catholics call it CCD, um, every Sunday. Um, but when I started to get, and I was actually pretty devout and felt very close to God when I was a young child. Um, but as I became a teenager and got more immersed in, you know, high school culture and just the culture at large in the United States, um, I started to question things and, um, you know, there's this sense that like, it's not cool to be a Christian or that it's something we don't need or it's outdated, um, and that really started to kind of get at me, probably starting in high school. And I wanted to be more like my peers and they weren't taking Christianity seriously. And so I started to sort of fall away, fell away in um, high school. Uh, I felt like th there were questions I had about Christianity that were never sufficiently answered. So I figured it wasn't something that was useful. Uh, so in college, I fell away, got very engaged in left wing politics and feminism in college. Um, and I bring that up because it does have a spiritual component, um, which I can talk more at length about. Uh, and after I left, so, you know, being sort of agnostic, um, never really explicitly atheist, but definitely like, oh, I just don't know. And it doesn't matter that I don't know. And focusing more on political ideology and things like that in college. And then when I left college, I, I did have experiences that 
made me realize there was a spiritual realm. Um, and so, you know, I no longer considered myself agnostic, but I didn't really have any sort of orientation of how to think about the spiritual realm uh, or how to engage with it or to, um, you, you know, just no really guidance whatsoever. So I, like many other people, became, I moved to San Francisco and uh, for work and I ended up becoming, uh, you know, involved in the, the dominant spiritual culture there, which is like new ageism, Buddhism, this kind of like amalgam of different spiritualities that people kind of cobble together and, and try to form this whole that, uh, as I was experiencing it, um, seemed sufficient for a while, you know, doing yoga, meditating a lot, um, doing things like tarot readings, um, to try to get insight into like my inner world, um, things like that, that are just very popular in San Francisco and in the Bay area, um, were kind of drawing me in. And a lot of the ideas of the new age were permeating my consciousness as well. Um, things like, you know, about manifesting what you want. Um, I, I, I never explicitly was, you know, endorsing the concept of like worshiping the self, but I think implicitly I was, um, and that's a big idea in the new age scene, um, is kind of seeing yourself as God. Um, and also the idea that, you know, uh, the Supreme creator is the universe rather than God. Um, and us as part of the universe are then kind of God by proxy. Um, so, um, ideas like that were, I were very popular in San Francisco and I really fed into that. Um, but then, um, a lot of things started to happen that sort of started to have me question things. Um, one of those things was that I was in a relationship with somebody who was insistent upon us being in an open relationship and we never really acted on this, but it was a constant dialogue and debate with me kind of pushing for monogamy and him pushing for us being open. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have really good, uh, ways to rationally argue with him. Now, I think, uh, since I've gone through this, I could make that argument on like a material level, right? Like a secular argument for why monogamy is good. Um, but I was really struggling with this and it was very like spiritually painful um, to be in this type of relationship where um, he and everyone around me in San Francisco was saying that open relationships were good mm -hmm. and that it might actually help your relationship long-term mm -hmm. and that it's, you know, the way to be more free and to respect one another. Um, and it just caused such deep, deep spiritual pain, like probably the worst I've ever experienced um, and not really having the tools to like combat this, this culture and, and even my boyfriend at the time who were arguing that this was good. So this can I, was can I ask you a question real quick? Yeah. Um, do, did any of these people that think this is such a great idea, did you, cause you know, you always look for the fruits of, of yes. what people are believing in. Um, did they seem like it was working? Did they seem happy? Did these relationships last? Were they fulfilling or was it kind of like they were just, they kept looking for the next new adventure, new experience or what? Oh yeah. I mean, it, they were not fulfilled. They were not happy. Um, from what I saw, it was constant emotional turmoil, constant anxiety, um, you know, people crying, being mm -hmm. hurt. Um, and also then this is crucially important, not forming families. Right. right? Um, mm -hmm. so this, this I idea of open relationships is not conducive to forming a healthy family. And I, again, I could get into like 
more material arguments of why that is, but now also spiritual mm-hmm. arguments of why that is. Um, and was, and isn't there was. sometimes I've heard, I mean, this, I'm not speaking from experience at all. I'm just things that I've heard about polyamory is that when the crying happens, sometimes the other person will say, Oh, you know, this isn't, this is an opportunity for you to grow and you just need to work through this. You're facing something right now. And so go deeper into that. And really it's like, no, I'm hurt because I want (laughs) a close bond with you and you want to be with all these other people. Yeah, that's really the narrative is that like you, that we need to evolve past jealousy, that jealousy is some, you know, thing inside of us that is ancient and no longer needed. And the argument presented to me would often be tied to like the birth control pill, right? Like, oh, well, we have birth control. So it's not like I'm going to get someone else pregnant. So, you know, your feelings of jealousy are need to be discarded. And Oh, because that's, that has some biological Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. We we're yeah. evolving out of that. We're like exactly. We need to evolve with mm-hmm. our technology, right? <laughs> and oh my gosh, it's just it's terrible. Um, it's, it's absolutely terrible. And um, right, it would be this framing of like it will help your spiritual growth, mm-hmm. be polyamorous, mm-hmm. to work through your jealousy and negative feelings, and just like let your partner be free. It's very, oh specific. yeah, because that's how you can be unconditionally loving to that. Yep. That's how you can show how unconditional yep. your love is, is by letting your partner go and be with a bunch of different people. Okay. Yep. So it's so, I mean, to us now, to me now, like, like that's ridiculous and so spiritually destructive mm-hmm. as far as a belief system. And it actually has major societal implications if, if everyone were to believe that it's, yeah. it's very destructive to actually civilizations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wrestling with this and then, and, you know, my ideas about like gender roles were being, you know, I was a feminist at the time. So I thought that like freedom was the highest value and that we should always orient ourselves in ways that maximize freedom. So open relationships seemed congruent with that. So I didn't really have like any tools to argue against this, even though it made me feel terrible to, to, to think this way. And so then, um, some things started to happen in the culture, actually, and politically um, that started to kind of change my tune. And I also was interacting with some friends who were coming around to Christianity and making me sort of uh, ask questions. Um, a big thing here, and this has been mentioned, I think, at least by Amy and I think by Amy and Jacob, is that Jordan Peterson was starting to become a big thing. And I was listening to him and he talks a lot about um the realities of gender and relationships and having children and things like that um, in a way that I think really reaches uh, was reaching people like me who were kind of confused and just looking for that like paternal guidance. Um, So So what year, like around what year was this that you were listening to him? I think it would have been like 2017, 2018. Um, Wait, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And um And so he was very influential on me. And there was, like I said, some things happening politically and in the culture, as well as things happening uh, through my work being a uh, a public relations representative for a a left-wing political advocacy company. Um, I was working in the press, working with journalists, and started to realize that when I spoke with journalists about our political advocacy campaigns, they never asked me any difficult questions. 
Um, even though I had prepared for the interviews by thinking about the other side of the argument mm-hmm. and what a reporter digging into our campaigns might ask. Yeah. And they would never ask difficult questions. Like they already agreed with us. They weren't going to challenge us. And they were just going to write a, a, a positive fluff piece about mm-hmm. our left-wing um, campaigns. So and so can I, I ask you a question real quick. So mm-hmm. if you had been on the right, would it have been different? Would they have been challenging you more? Oh, Almost certainly, or I, I I think they wouldn't have even been covering our campaign. Right, right. That's yeah. what I was thinking. Yeah, <laughs> like you were just making a, the job easy for them. They were just gonna yeah. tell tell the world all the nice things that you were doing. Exactly, and oh, this group is pushing for this specific uh, policy or whatever, and isn't that great? Instead mm-hmm. of like, well, what if X Y Z happens as mm-hmm. a result? What about this angle? What about that? Which is the role of a reporter. And they weren't doing their job. So all these things are happening to me. I'm starting to kind of like question the the sort of political landscape. I'm starting to realize a lot of things I thought were true politically were not true. Um, A lot of ideas I had about gender were being questioned, both through, you know, listening to Jordan Peterson and like thinking through my relationship and what is the role of a man and a woman in a relationship in order to have a healthy relationship um, so all these things were really happening and, um, and I, I finally, you know, realized that, um, that, uh, I started to become more like interested in Christianity and I started to really realize that a lot of moral arguments that Christians had made my entire life, which I had dismissed, uh, had basis in reality. Um, things like not having sex before marriage, things like biblical gender roles, um, uh, where, you know, the women are uh, oriented towards taking care of children in the home and the men provide and protect. I started to realize that there were deep, deep reasons for this. Um, and that not only were they like material in nature, biological in nature, because women bear children, um, they were also spiritual, like divinely ordained roles that uh, basically the crux of what I was realizing is that we can't design ourselves Um, I can't just decide to be in an open relationship and be okay with that and feel okay with that. God made me a specific way. He designed male-female relationships a specific way, monogamous, and we can't fight that. And we have to humble ourselves to God's design for relationships. So I had this insight, you know, broke up with my boyfriend um, and uh, was starting to orient myself towards thinking I wanted a relationship that looked more traditional. Um, And then was also realizing that in San Francisco, I was surrounded by people who didn't share my ideals and my newly found ideals and uh, my like friendly attitude towards Christianity and Christian morality. And so I left, um, Amy and I left and um, we realized we needed a community. Of, of like-minded people and that that was going to be very important uh, and that we hadn't had that really um, in San Francisco, a healthy community of people with good morals and values and living a lifestyle that was going to be uh, getting people to where they wanted to go to having families and having healthy relationships and things like that. Um, so we moved to New York and we actually spent a little bit of time at an art church, which tried to sort of combine all religions because we were friendly to Christianity, um, interested in it, but I think we were still kind of 
in our transition phase out of the new age and thinking we wanted to retain some of the things from the new age that we liked, like psychedelic art and um, sort of, you know, piecemeal taking some things from other religions. We weren't really sure what we should discard. So we spent some time. um, Sorry, I hate to keep interrupting you, but um, I don't want to forget to ask you this later. So had you been to Burning Man by this time? No, but I had been to a lot of music festivals that were like Burning Man adjacent. Okay, because you are a performer. Yes, I'm a fire dancer. Yeah, fire dancer. So you probably wanted, you probably were still in a lot of these kinds of communities of people because of the performance art. And then you're you're a writer, you know, you're like me, like I, I have this creative side to me. And so that's a that's a big reason why new age type communities were so attractive to me because I loved belly dancing. I loved painting, um, like henna painting, all that kind of stuff, crystals and the, the massive jewelry, the headdresses that the belly dancers wore. I used to make stuff like that. I have, I still have a lot of my costumes. I mean, I, I was really, really attracted to that world in part because of the visual aspect of it and the performance aspect of it. And then the the spiritual part is, is a huge part. So I'm just, I'm kind of like trying to picture you making this transition, but you're still into a lot of like the visual aspect of that culture. So what was this church? What was this art church like? Yeah. And that's exactly, you absolutely nailed it. Like I'm very creative. Like I'm a fire dancer, which I got into through the the culture of San Francisco. Um, I also like to make costumes. I like to perform. I really like the aesthetics of this Mm -hmm. kind of psychedelic new age Buddhist sort of culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, and the music, the music. Yeah. There's (laughs) stuff I really was struggling with, but I noticed when I was in these scenes Uh, when I was at music festivals and when I was going to parties that were full of burners and things, um, I was noticing that when I spoke with people, there was like a hollowness where I couldn't really deeply connect with them. My relationships with people didn't last very long. They were sort of fleeting. Um, It felt like people weren't oriented towards whatever that thing would be that would make us feel really in communion with another one another. Mm -hmm. Um, There's always this sense that something was missing. And, you know, even going to like, you know, like nightclubs with like EDM music and stuff and people were doing drugs. It felt like people were, I think Amy mentioned this on her podcast. They were thinking like that the DJ was the priest and the sacrament was LSD and, and the club was the church. Like that was kind of, that was kind of what was going on. Like that this was people's spiritual practice. And it was hollow and felt like something was off. And then their lifestyles were not leading to families and were not leading to um, anything other than like anxiety and depression, really. Yeah. Um, and and needing a lot of drugs to to like maintain these transcendental right. states. Yeah, like chasing the next peak experience, kind of like Jacob and I were talking about. Right. So. Right. So we kind of, when we left California, we were like still wanting to hang on to a little bit of that culture because growing up on um, in Pennsylvania, there was not really a culture of art and performance around us. And we've always been very creative and that always kind of made us feel stifled. So we were like, okay, we'll go to New York, upstate New York, where um, maybe people are living a little bit more traditionally, but there's still some aspect of this like kind of hippie culture that we can engage with. And when we spent time at um, 
um, this art church that was let, run by artists and had a, you know, explicit spiritual angle where you would walk in and they had like a statue of Jesus meditating and like a menorah and then like uh, um, the Om symbol. And like, it was all religions in one and they would like depict it in a circle. Like they're all the same thing. And the whole idea was that like, oh, all religions just like share the same core and they're all kind of indistinguishable or they're all offering something, pointing to something um, divine. And I still felt spending time here that like that same feeling that like something was missing people's lives still weren't quite together. There were still people in open relationships at this so-called church. Um, I saw things there I I morally didn't agree with. And I realized that this was kind of the final thing that made me realize I need a Christian church. I need to go find a Christian community. Um, So started going back to Roman Catholic churches because I was raised Roman Catholic. And um, a friend in Arlington, Virginia had taken me to her church once and they had done a coffee hour afterwards and everyone got together and chatted after the liturgy. And I really liked that because when I was growing up, people in Roman Catholic churches would just leave right after they received the Eucharist. And I always felt like that was weird and like we should be communing more and talking to each other and knowing each other and what's going on in each other's lives. And so I went to a couple of Catholic churches um, in upstate New York and I would, and we would, Amy and I would like call them and be like, do you guys do a coffee hour? And they were like, what are you talking about? So the same issues I, that had led me away from Roman Catholicism as a child where I felt like, you know, there wasn't really a sense of community or like people trying to help one another to like understand what it means to be a Christian was still present or, or absent. Right? The issue, the things I wanted were still absent in Roman Catholicism mm-hmm. all these years later. Um, so I actually then got into a relationship with someone who was, um, an evangelical Protestant and I didn't know what that meant, uh, at the time. I just was really dazzled that this, this guy was a Christian and such, such a strong Christian and he'd always been a Christian and he knew his Bible and, and he had good morals and wanted to have a family and all this stuff. And, um, but it was through, and so we started going to some Protestant churches because he was also kind of seeking, like, he wasn't really sure where his church home was. So I became exposed to Protestant churches uh, through this relationship. And those were just so strange to me because often there wasn't an altar. Um, there wasn't a focus on the sacraments. There were the, the buildings were often very like modern and bland. Like I'm used to like statues and stained glass and like, you know, beautiful, um, just like the altars in Roman Catholic churches are beautiful. And there, there's often this focus on beauty Uh, as like a transcendent value. And I wasn't seeing that in the Protestant churches and that kind of bothered me. Like, I felt like I was in college at a lecture hall, like someone would get up there, the pastor would get up there and, and talk about the Bible and they really knew the Bible. And they even did a really good job of like connecting the Bible to our lives. But there was a lot missing, like this Mm -hmm. sense of hierarchy of like the priests and the bishop. Right. And the sense of beauty, the, the beauty of the churches that kind of, invoke the idea of the transcendent good when you gaze upon stained glass and things like that and just didn't feel complete and I started to kind of get into these debates with my boyfriend at the time about theology because um as Amy said a lot of people were starting to mention orthodoxy to us you should check out the orthodox church check out the orthodox church and we even went to one and um we were like okay they have beauty um but we didn't really understand I think it was like a 
a Ukrainian church the first time we went and the service wasn't in English. And we just like weren't hundred percent sold, but we were kind of like intrigued. And um, I started having these conversations with my boyfriend about theology and how does the Orthodox theology and like Protestant theology, although it's kind of a broad term, but um, how does that differ? And I was looking into church history and things like that. And um, we got very hung up on the issue of sola fide. Um, he and I, where he believes that as long as you believe in Christ, you're safe, you're going to heaven. And the Orthodox idea is more like, yes, we were saved, we're being saved and we will be saved. And it's this idea of theosis, which is, you know, uh, that our faith matters. And also we have to like participate in the energies of God. And, and it's more of this, uh, something that's like happening over our lives and that every single day we're going to struggle against sin and, 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 you know, need to focus on our belief and strengthening our belief. And that's going to be difficult every day. And it's not this one and done event. Um, and I realized I just didn't believe the, I I wasn't, I didn't believe in Salafide um, and that I was really drawn to the Orthodox church and um, ended up going to a local Orthodox church where I live now. And just as soon as I went there, I was like, oh, this is, this is what I was looking for. (laughs) People were friendly. Uh, There was a sense of community. People were excited to see us. They're giving us books. They had a really vibrant coffee hour. There was beauty in the church. The, The priest, I'd never had an experience where I could talk to a priest and I felt comfortable talking to him. Um, and, and the priest was friendly. And then I was looking into theology and I agreed with the theology and there was the focus on the saints, which was another point of contention with me. And, uh, I, I did, I broke up with, uh, the, the ex-boyfriend, but, um, we were arguing a lot about saints mm-hmm. and, you know, he, he was not comfortable, uh, asking for saints to intercede and, and, and addressing them in prayer. Mm-hmm. And, um, whereas the Orthodox idea is, you know, we, Uh, believe we can ask for the prayers of saints because we believe in the resurrection we believe they're alive right now they're alive in christ and that this world is quite porous and that they are alive in christ and can pray for us and um that's just not um really uh something that the protestants believe so lots of things just weren't congruent with our faith and um i was very happy to find the orthodox church even though it did mean the end of this relationship um, I felt like I had found a home and, um, was ready to commit to the Orthodox church and, and make that my, the center of my spiritual life and growth. Um, and that's what I did. So yeah, I was chrismated in March of last year. So haven't been Orthodox a full year, but, um, it's been the thing that I was looking for, you know, all these years. Yeah. I hear that a lot that that everything, and I can speak to that too, everything I was searching for in the new age, I found in orthodoxy and it's beautiful. So cool. Um, Gosh, you said so many amazing things and I I took some notes. And um, one thing that really stood out to me that you were talking about was that in the culture in San Francisco, the highest value amongst that community was this idea of freedom. So what, um, now that you're Orthodox and you're in a different community, what are some of the values or, um, you know, we wanted to talk a little bit about objective truth and something that usually comes up in this conversation is humility. Cause that was a big one for me too. There's no sense of like, um, 
humbling ourselves, <laughs> repenting for anything in the new age. And so that was a big shift for me, but it, it was something that I, I realized I'd really been needing um, to make any kind of real change in my life to become a better person. So anything about that, that you want to share from your experience? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of this is so interconnected, right? Like, so the new age has the focus on you're enough as you are, you are enough. Right. And um, that, that, that idea uh, kind of is at odds with the Christian idea that, you know, you're a sinner and um, you are going to do bad things and you're going to struggle against your, your uh, will and, um, and uh, you know, temptations uh, into bad things. And the answer is to repent and seek to be more like God. Um, but the new age idea that you're like fine as you are is at odds with that. And it all sort of, one thing I noticed when I was coming out of the new age and, and entering the world of Christendom is that Christians focus a lot on the concept of virtue. Um, whereas it seemed that in the new age, the, first of all, you never even hear the word virtue. Mm -hmm. So there's really no focus on it at all. Um, and like you said, no, really no focus on things like, okay, what is pride? Why is it good to be humble? Things like that. Um, there's no focus on virtue at all, except for maybe the virtue of empathy um, is really all you ever hear about. It's like being empathetic. We should be empathetic towards one another. Mm -hmm. But if empathy is your only virtue, then, and if people are only ever empathetic towards you and they never emphasize other virtues like responsibility or moderation, then you have no incentive to ever change or to become a better person. Yeah. Um, if the focus is just only on being empathetic to people and, and not upon, you know, kind of enforcing these other virtues. So this all ties back into freedom as the highest value, right? Um, freedom is that which is like, I, I used to think that, Freedom was that which was unbound by any restraint. Um, and in a sense it is, but the, it's kind of a paradox because I've actually found that once you impose some boundaries um, and limits, you actually often feel more free, right? <laughs> like, like the idea with, and back to polyamory and open relationships, the idea is that you'll feel better and feel more free if you're free to like sleep with whoever you want but you actually become enslaved to like base desires and to hedonistic pleasure seeking. Yeah. Whereas if you impose boundaries on your relationship and say, we're monogamous, we're not going to go off seeking other partners. You actually feel more liberated with the restraints. So, you know, the Orthodox church does have this focus on boundaries um, and, and, and discipline Christians in general focus on discipline and virtue um, things that we don't get from the new age that um, do impose restrictions upon us. Um, but those restrictions paradoxically do help us to feel more free to grow, um, to become better versions of ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this also does tie into, we were, you mentioned like ob objective truth um, and something I, kind of realized in my political journey, which tied into my spiritual journey, was that we're living in this culture of moral relativism, where because Americans do sort of value freedom as the highest thing, we've that's kind of bled into our ideas of right and wrong. And so we now think that morality is this relative thing where right and wrong is subjective to the individual. So whatever you feel, whatever is right for you, this is why no one around me could tell me that open relationships were bad, by the way. 
Because they were like, if it feels right for you, if it's right for you, then that's fine. Instead of saying, no, there's an objective moral standard to relationships. Monogamy is right. Open relationships are wrong. And this is universal, right? So, yeah, so, so, so moral relativism is just, you know, this idea that, you know, whatever you feel or your culture mm-hmm. thinks at the time is what's right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And that kind of abdicates us of responsibility or, or boundaries. So it's all interconnected. Yeah. And, and that, that is kind of the virtue of that culture is, is to be a relativist. If you're not a relativist, then you're yeah, out, you know, it. like yeah. you're closed-minded, you're judgmental. You don't, you know, um, I, I couldn't see that, of course, <laughs> when I was in it, when I was a relativist, I, I didn't have the, me- you know, the mechanism to work that out because, of course, we have to accept everyone for who they are and what feels good to them. Like you said before, it's a lot to do with what feels good. Mm-hmm. If it feels good, it must be right. And that that was huge in the ayahuasca culture that I was in, you know. Yeah, I, we see this a lot too in like uh, that this idea of like tolerance as a virtue. Oh, yes, right. Tol- yeah, if you're not tolerant, but they're yeah. but they're not tolerant of Christians. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. And and like and, and there are some things within us within humanity that we shouldn't tolerate, right? Yeah. And it is, and they are a lot of them hypocritical because there are things they won't tolerate, like being a Christian or being a conservative, right? Yeah. But yet we hear constantly about how you need to tolerate people and um, and things that might actually be bad for us, right? So, um, yeah, it's all it's all kind of tied together. Um, these kind of uh, social, polit- socio political things we're seeing, I think, are have their roots in spirituality. Yeah, it's so interesting. So tell us a little bit about the writing you do. And you also write for EV magazine. So I want to talk about that too. Yeah. And the so, feminism, like tie that, let's tie this in with how we've I mean, I was a feminist too. So I love talking about that too. So definitely. Yeah. Yep. I was a, a big feminist and um part of my writing, well, actually the focus of my writing for Evie is to kind of reveal the ways that that ideology can harm women. Um, it's kind of sold to us under the guise of liberation, but it actually ends up hurting us. And it, it sounds very nice, but I think that feminism doesn't get women to where they're going to ultimately want to go, which for most women is usually towards like marriage and family life. Um, for most women, not everybody, but for the majority. Um, and there's a lot of, and even if you are married, there are toxic ideas within feminism, I think that can actually hurt your relationship. So, uh, I write a lot for EV Magazine about just kind of taking apart some of these ideas that are prominent in our culture. Um, I've written a lot about uh, how sexual liberation um, makes men less masculine and uh, disincentivizes them from committing um, and, you know, forming long-term relationships that lead to marriage and children. Um, I think that one of the biggest lies of feminism is, uh, first of all, it tells women that you know, you don't have any power. You have no power in the society and in this world. Mm-hmm. And the way to get power is to like assert yourself, mm-hmm. be sexually liberated, you know, really stick it to the man by having a powerful career, all of these things. Um, but its premise is wrong, right? Like um, 
women have power. It just looks different than male power, right? So women are never going to be uh, just by our nature, the way that we're made. We're not going to feel like we want to like conquer things or like uh, we're, we're uh, we tend to be more agreeable. We tend to be um, more focused on people than things. So there are these differences among men and women that are built into our nature, as controversial as that is to say, that mean that we're going to be more focused on relationships. We're not going to be oriented towards like being a high earning CEO and, and the head of the boardroom and, and things like this. Whereas our true power lies in like our ability to be nurturing, to foster community, to beautify spaces, um, and crucially to select men uh, for reproduction. <laughs> so, um, you know, female sexuality gatekeeps which men are rewarded um, which men can carry on their genes. And as such, women have a responsibility to withhold sex until men have met a certain standard showing that they're worthy. Yeah. And because feminism teaches that, that um, hookup culture is liberating, we have totally eroded the incentives for men to become masculine and to become men that would be like worth marrying. Um, basically when women you know, sleep with men too early on, uh, that means we haven't really required him to meet any sort of standard of behavior in order to be rewarded. So that's why we sort of have this like crisis of masculinity where men aren't really stepping up and becoming dependable and um, self-sacrificial and virtuous um, because sex is so abundant and cheap and freely available mm -hmm. because women are providing it. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also the issue of how men and women form their long-term pair bonds um, women are bonded to a man when they orgasm with him, but men, if they have an orgasm with a woman early on, they don't release their bonding hormone. They have to not sleep with a woman and spend a lot of time with her to see her as a wife and mother and to bond to her. Mm -hmm. So just everything about how our culture tells us to relate to mm -hmm. one another as opposite sexes is off. And, and let's yeah, let's be clear here too for the audience because there's always going to be that commenter who's going to be like, "Well, I slept with my husband on our first date, and we've been together for 12 years." And we're not talking about individual stories. Yes, of course there are exceptions to everything, and I hope that the audience has the intelligence to listen to what Julie's saying and realize that we're talking about the culture and what's being fed to our teenagers and even younger girls right now via TV, movies, music, um, magazines, all the media. Yeah. Um, that's what we're talking about is kind of like what's accepted and normalized, not um, individual. Because I, I do know people who are who did bond on the first date, you know, and they're still together. Yeah. We're not we're not like this is a general conversation. So I just want right. to say that because. I just don't want someone leaving a comment like, well, what about this? What about yeah. that? We're, we're talking about the, the issues of feminism in general. Right. Cause for every, cause there are couples, like you said, that they maybe followed the cultural script and it turned out okay, but there are tons of people yeah. who followed the cultural script and it doesn't turn out okay. Right. Exactly. And the man won't commit. And mm -hmm. the women are saying, I'm doing everything that I'm told to do. I'm being sexy and, and, and giving him what he wants. And why mm -hmm. won't he commit to me? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I found, so at Evie getting back to my writing, I try to just explain this to young women. Um, you know, why, why were these social norms in place that we've now torn down? Um, 
like we decided they were outdated and unneeded, but it's like GK Chesterton says, like, if you see a fence, you shouldn't tear it down until you know why it's there. Right. So I think we didn't know why some of these structures were in place and then we tore them down and now we're kind of seeing the the destruction. Um, And there's a spiritual component, you know, I think women and men are built to deeply desire one another, to desire communion with one another, to want to build shared lives and families. And when you have a culture that has lost its sense of how to properly orient people towards that, then you're going to have a lot of pain and hurt. And, and so there is this, that, that is, um, you know, destructive to people's souls, the yeah. way that we've set up our social norms. Absolutely. It's, the more I read about, you know, occult roots of things like feminism, I don't know if you know about my friend, Rachel Wilson, she just published a book called The Occult Roots of Feminism, which I'm going to read and um, have her back on my show. But um, it's just so interesting to see how historically and then with the Bolshevik revolution and all actually before that, like the French, all these revolutions, the revolutionary spirit in general has this agenda to remove God from society. And it's, it's the antichrist. I mean, it's, it's just picking up steam so fast, but around 1917, it seems like that's when it really hit the West, the West, you know, and um, so. Yeah. And it's been doing like, what I don't remember who said it's doing its slow march through the institutions, right? Like you see all, all American institutions uh, around us are sort of falling to this, Mm -hmm. um, this kind of state where they're promoting things that are bad for our our souls and our spirits. And and people increasingly see Christianity as outdated and unneeded. And whereas really what built this country was a Christian foundation. Um, I forget who said, there's actually a, quite a good speech by um, former Attorney General Barr. And he talks about how the American Constitution was created for a religious people. Because the only way you can have a society with this amount of freedom allowed by the government is if people are self-restrained through a uh, religious morality. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the constitution was never meant to allow you to like watch porn and like eat whatever you want and, and, you know, and just, you know, sleep around and get pregnant and have abortions. Yeah. Like that's not what it, that's not what freedom means. Like, um, with freedom comes responsibility and, and these sort of constraints, these moral restraints, that religion places on us mm-hmm. um, are suitable to the U.S. Constitution, um, but if you don't have a religious morality kind of um, tying you to virtue and moral boundaries, then you're just mm-hmm. going to have a society of chaos. Right. So, um, if the government's not going to impose restraints, then we need to be self-restrained. Otherwise, you get chaos, and then the government will become authoritarian, mm-hmm. and it will start to try to impose restraints, and in a way that people probably aren't going to like. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, if we want freedom, it's crucial that we ourselves are are self controlled and, and take on responsibility. So, wow, yeah. So, I guess, and I, then I, that I, goes back to the family because that's mm-hmm. where we learn these important moral convictions, and then at church and our church community as well. Yep. And it's so important to have a network of people that are going to hold you accountable. Like one of the things I struggled with the most in San Francisco is that 
no one around me would like tell my boyfriend that he was hurting me by pushing an open relationship. There was just no, people didn't care. They didn't see it as bad. Like, and, and I think if he had had more social accountability, if less people around him were like, that's fine. He probably would be like, Oh, there's something wrong with me. Like, why am I pushing her to do this? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's very culture matters. We take, we're social animals. We take our cues from others. Um, and that kind of leads me to, I didn't talk a lot. You asked about my writing also at all sides. Um, so I had mentioned earlier how, um, noticing that the media was biased, uh, kind of, uh, opened the door to like a political shift that led me to seeking objective truth. Um, but really, uh, the reason I write about media bias now is because like, the devil is so deceptive and crafty, right? So like often uh, we're, we're living in an environment where we're just bombarded by information all the time. And this 24 seven news media uh, atmosphere. And what will happen is that the information that we're getting, we're getting will often be like subtly manipulated or um, distorted to paint a certain picture of reality that isn't actually true. Or maybe even like the core of what it's saying, or sorry, it might even be like based on fact, but just like distorted a little bit to have you be like focusing on the wrong thing, right? And there's just a lot of examples of this, um, the way that the media does this. Um, But uh, basically I started to realize that I needed to be discerning. This is another thing Christians focus a lot on, like discernment about information that I was getting um, and how people were writing things and like the adjectives they were using or like um, the stories they were focusing on versus downplaying um, in order to uh, be very careful about where I was being led by others. So my writing at all sides really focuses on helping people to spot when the media is trying to, it is, is being manipulative or distorting your view. Um, so I wrote a guide to 12 types of media bias, which is on all sides. And it teaches you how to notice these, uh, these little like tricks and things that you'll see in the press that are kind of trying to get you to think a certain way about things. Um, one example that I was writing about today was um, at the use of adjectives in the media. So you'll see like, oh, there's a disturbing rise or a troubling trend mm-hmm. or um, uh, one that we, uh, or, or, or you'll just see journalists describing things for you instead of telling you what happened and then letting you make the judgment call of whether or not that's disturbing or a good thing or whatever um, yourself. So one way that we'll see this is like when states pass laws restricting abortion, um, some people uh, would think that's a good thing. Some people would think it's a bad thing, but if a reporter, if all you ever see, you're in a bubble of media that calls it like a disturbing trend, then you're going to go, oh yeah, it's, it's bad to restrict abortion. Right. Yeah. And, and so you'll never know that there's another side of things where people actually think that's a good thing. So learning how to assess the information that's coming in is really important. Cause I think we're all, a lot of us are kind of caught up in like a media bubble that's reflecting a specific morality or like lack thereof mm-hmm. back to us. And then we don't realize there's another way of thinking about things. And so there's no oversight. There's like, there's no body of, I don't know. There's nobody other than you doing this in, independently. There's nobody who's like 
going to these reporters and saying, you know, this isn't, this isn't fair reporting you're doing. This is like subject. This is more of an editorial piece than actual objective reporting. Nobody's doing that. There's like a few media watchdog organizations. Um, but I, I, from what I can tell, like all sides is one of the only, uh, organizations that's actually like helping to explain to people Mm -hmm. how to separate fact from opinion Mm -hmm. and how to be more media literate um, in the sense of like how media is being written today. Um, So there are groups that kind of like point out political hypocrisy or, or things like that in the press. Um, But one of my main focuses is trying to help people to have the tools that they need to read a news article and go, oh, like the journalist used this adjective, but like, I, I know someone who actually maybe thinks that's a good thing or, or, or has a different perspective or what, and just being out a spot when you're in like an echo chamber yeah. of people uh, pushing one point of view. So, that's so important. So good. I'm sitting here thinking, I wish you could go, you could send people into schools to teach this to kids, but the public schools are unfortunately um, teaching from a certain bias, certain narrative, and they probably wouldn't want you coming in and doing that. Well, I mean, yeah. And bringing it back to feminism, I think one of the reasons that young women become feminists is because our media environment pushes it so hard. They push that idea. There's there's very little media that talks about like, um, you know, the merits of being a wife and mother or what should you look for in a man? Um, You know, what, what does it look like to be a good man or a good woman? Mm -hmm. Um, The media is largely about like, we're just really bombarded with like, sexual imagery that encourages us to be very loose with our sexuality, um, just takedowns of how, you know, how terrible men are and we don't Mm -hmm. need them. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you can't start, if you can't identify how this ideology is, is permeating the press, then you might just consume it unquestioningly and then adopt it. And I think that's part of what happened with me, um, is that it was just everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, movies and newspapers were all kind of depicting this single view of what it means to be a woman. Right. And it's, it turns out that's not a great path in my opinion. Even, um, you know, if if you ask a little girl, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they say, I want to be a mommy. It's like, so uh, it's like, what? It's so unaccepted. Well, don't you want to be a doctor? Don't you want to be a fashion designer? It's like that. And that would be, those are fine answers too. We're not saying that little girls should not have aspirations of doing things they enjoy, but if what they really want to do is be a mommy and a wife, we need to let that be great. Like, Oh, you're going to be a great mom. Like I can see that you you're creative and you like to cook and you're, you're so good with your cat and your dolls. Like we need to really encourage. It seems so simple, but, um, I don't know. I don't just so perverse now. Like (laughs) it's just, it, it doesn't really have any message for how, how do you become a virtuous wife? And, and Christians are really the only ones I know who talk about this. Like yeah. once I became interested in like mm-hmm. long-term committed relationships that lead to marriage, the only people I really knew who were like providing insight into how to like shape yourself into someone who's marriageable 
we're Christians. So um, it's just something that's really missing from our culture. And I think really hurts women. Um, the, the sort of singular focus on independence and, and freedom as our high, highest values. So. Wow. So interesting. Yeah. I mean, all you have to do is come visit my parish and you'll see these families. I mean, sure. I don't know what they talk about behind closed doors, but their children are well-adjusted, happy. They seem like really happy families. I'm sure there have been divorces in my church, but um, when I talk to, especially the older women, they've been together with their husband for like 40, 50 years. (laughs) And, um, and in new age culture, you don't see that as much. Yeah. I started to notice when I was in the new age that like intergenerational wisdom wasn't being Mm -hmm. passed on. Like it was like most of the people in the culture were young and didn't have families and, and hadn't, they weren't really doing anything like generative, if that makes sense. Like what they were generating was like really fun parties and costumes and like, you know, music festivals and EDM shows, they were creative and creating things, but they weren't creating families uh, and they weren't really creating something more permanent. Like I felt like there was this impermanence to what was being created. I mean, even Burning Man, the idea is that it's ephemeral and you like burn the man and he's gone. Right. And I started to really think about like um, time and, and inter, um, and, and like these sort of like intergenerational things, like what sacrifices did my ancestors make to bring me into being, mm-hmm. right? I started to think on like a kind of wider time scale because the people that I was around were so focused on short-term pleasure and they, they weren't really cultivating relationships with people older than them who had wisdom about how to live. And they also weren't passing on what they knew to someone younger. So it was just this like insular, like party culture, really. And I remember even looking at a man I knew, he was like in his forties and he was at a party. um, And he was like dressed up in this ridiculous outfit with like, like uh, they were like um, pom-poms like attached to him. I don't know what look he was going for. He had some sort of weird costume on. And I remember being like, that's a weird look on a, on a 40 year old man, but it would be fun to like have a child and like design a costume for them. And then it would be more like age appropriate, but he's being the child. Like he's the one who's dressed up. And like, you even see people at Burning Man and at these festivals, like in onesies, that's like a big, thing they're like people are wearing onesies and it's just this weird culture of like infantilization and and refusing to grow up and and I just started to notice these things and realize that like this culture wasn't going to get me to where I wanted to go whereas at church you have people of all ages hopefully um some churches maybe skew younger or older mine skews older um so that people can kind of like uh share their wisdom with each other Mm -hmm. pass things on you know Mm -hmm. so you, when you were talking about that, made me think of Peter Pan syndrome. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Oh yeah, concept. I, I was just tweeting about this because that I, I that's something we see a lot in the New Age culture, right? Is um, is Peter Pan syndrome, which is men not really wanting to grow up and commit, and and because commitment is a sacrifice, right? When you choose a spouse or you choose to have a family, you're sacrificing your other options. You're sacrificing sleeping with every woman in the world or um, having a different woman. Um, and you're sacrificing when you have children, certain other things, maybe like a career path that would require 100% of your time or 
maybe traveling the world, whatever it is. So commitment is sacrifice. And um, Christianity does have a focus on sacrifice as virtuous. I mean, like that's the big, uh, huge idea behind what Christ did for us, right? Yeah, right. Um, and so, um, but the new age doesn't have this focus. So when you don't have the concept of sacrifice, you get Peter Pan's. And I was actually tweeting about this the other day. Uh, the word pan means everything whole. Mm. So you're like, the, and this is actually an idea from Jordan Peterson. I can't claim it, but he talks about how you're like the king of everything when you're Peter Pan, because you have endless optionality. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you pick something and commit to it, like you're on that path. And the only way that you can bring something into being is by actually picking an option and committing to it rather than just keeping your options open forever. And I, and I felt like in the new age scene, there was sort of this, like people were very like transient and like unrooted and sort of like bohemian and kind of just going from place to place mm-hmm. and never really like staking out a home yeah. and spouse and like cr- building something that was going to like outlive them. It was just yeah. all very in the moment and, and ephemeral. So when I was, when I was a teenager, probably I think I started listening to the grateful dead when I was like 14, started smoking weed. And I told my mom, I'll never have a mortgage. I just, it was like, I was so proud of myself. Like I will never be tied down. Like you are like, I'll never live, you know, live this limited, boring life. Like you have. And thank goodness I did not um, stick with that idea because yeah, <laughs> I'd be so miserable. Right. And, and once again, that like, Tying yourself to home property ownership is a responsibility, but then you actually have more freedom. Like you can do what you want with the house. Like it's yours. Whereas if you're renting forever or like going out from place to place, it's like this false idea of freedom. You don't actually have control over any, uh, over your space. Right. And so, yeah, it's, it's really, um, it really is a paradox that like tying yourself down can lead to a greater sense of freedom. I think it's hard for people to grasp. Um, and it's not just in the new age. So, you know, um, I'm sure you've done research about porn and how men, and I know women watch porn too, but just talking about men right now, um, they watch porn and then they get addicted to it. And then there's another reason why they don't want to be tied down to one woman. Cause when you watch porn, you can watch a different couple every couple minutes. If you wanted to, you have all these various types of experiences you can watch. And so who wants to just be with one woman that would be so boring and so limiting. Right. Right. And it's, it's sort of this, like, I think it's the psychological warfare to have access to porn like that, because like you said, it opens you up to this idea that there's like something better over there, something new over there. And this like pursuit of endless novelty. Right. And men are wired for sexual novelty, which is why it's one of their greatest temptations and something that they really need to guard against. And porn does us absolutely no favor favors in tempering that impulse in men. In fact, it makes it so much worse. I mean, there are studies that say that couples that watch porn are more likely to divorce and you can kind of see why, right? Like you're, you're putting other options in your mind, even though they're simulated on a screen, um, they are tempting you, um, to, you know, uproot the the core bond that you have with your spouse. So, uh, that that's, um, 
another thing that I think our cult, our, our culture, which is no longer dominated by a Christian virtue, there's just this total normalization of porn, mm-hmm. right? It's it, it, if you are anti-porn or even like think it should be banned or whatever, like you are in our culture, just like such a weirdo. Yeah. And, and in my opinion, that's the correct belief that, mm-hmm. that it's bad for us, that it's, it's doing all this harm. And it's mm-hmm. actually, um, I don't remember who said that porn is the devil's iconography. Oh yeah. Um, that's a good quote. That's so yeah. True. But it's, um, spiritually decimating, mm-hmm. um, to everyone involved, including the people who are like making it. And like, it's just terrible. Yeah. And it's been so normalized in our culture and, um, and, seen as just like normal or even like you'll see people say it's healthy to watch it you know oh, like yeah 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 <laughs> and when the the downsides are just so obvious there's a an organization called fight the new drug that does pretty good work um you know kind of like raising awareness of like why this is so destructive to our society and and things like that um but this was just another example of how when I was moving from my like looser new age spirituality into Christianity, I started to realize that like even people advocating for open relationships, right. I think a lot of that has to do with being exposed to porn, yeah. right. Look at all this novelty you're asking me to give up. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, that was just another thing where when I became Christian, I was like, Oh, the, like Christians were right about this. <laughs> like it has, you know, uh, negative effects on our souls and our relationships. And, and they were right about this, but really had to, go through life as like a more sexual or uh, a more uh, spiritual, not religious person to like, see why these, these things were bad. So, so this is, this is just something I think about now almost every day, multiple times per day is about how, when we, when we become Christians and we understand the spiritual battle for our souls, then we can't unsee it. You know, we have this new sense of discernment so that when we see something in a commercial or um, an ad for a movie, something where we're like, oh my gosh, that's so blatantly satanic or that's like the antichrist full on. And, And it's so obvious to us, but at least speaking for myself, I went through most of my life in that state of like, oh, it's just how it is. And yeah, I don't know why people watch horror movies, but whatever they they exist, people like it for whatever reason. And now, you know, um, there's just so many examples to me of the spiritual war. And I'm wondering what you can say about, or if you want to add anything to this, that sometimes it's even... <laughs> It's almost impossible to have a conversation about this with someone who's not a Christian because they don't have that discernment. And it's not, I'm not trying to say like, oh, I'm so much better than the new age people. It's not like that because I was that person for most of my life. It's just like what I'm saying is that it's this discernment, even politically. And then again, talking about feminism and porn and all these things we've been talking about, we see the spiritual battle and why Christianity helps protect us, why being a Christian and understanding things from the Christian perspective, seeing how the world works and how the enemy works. I mean, when I was a new ager, there wasn't, there's no such thing as the devil. There's no such thing as enemy. So um, have you had any 
conversations with people or like, do you ever feel like you're hitting a roadblock because they, they, they can't see that with the discernment that you're seeing it now with? Yeah. I mean, all the time. Right. Like, and, um, and it's, it's, it's something that, like you said, you'll, you see these examples of things that are kind of like thrown at us to try to like throw us off spiritually, uh, all the time, especially from media. That's like why so much of my work is focused on helping people to, to be discerning about the media they consume. And when you become a Christian, you kind of have this like filter mm-hmm. for um, for things that are going to be spiritually uplifting and pointing towards the highest good versus things that are going to drag you down yeah. and 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 pull you in a bad direction. But in a morally relativistic landscape, everything's the same. And it just, uh, it just depends on what you want or what you like. Mm-hmm. And I even, I had this like, because my spiritual uh, journey was tied to my political journey. I had this realization where I was realizing that like Americans tend to think of politics as like left and right. And it's mm-hmm. this like horizontal spectrum of like, Oh, you're like more socialist. So you're like on the left or you're more like conservative. So you're on the right. But now I think of it as vertical and, and everything politically or otherwise in our lives is either orienting us closer to God mm-hmm. or closer to hell. Yeah. And so when your perspective shifts from this like kind of horizontal um, worldview to a vertical one, or at least when you add that dimension, mm-hmm. right, uh, is this pulling me up or down towards the highest good God, the highest good that I can conceive of um, versus something, you know, demonic and enslaving and something that's going to really hurt me, then you can kind of navigate the world a bit better but you also are seeing with a dimension that a lot of, I think, secular people don't have. And then they don't understand you when you might like reject something that they think is neutral or, or even good, right? They might not um, understand that angle. So yeah, I, I see that a lot. Um, and uh, it's, it, it's hard, especially because I think it's hard to get people to see that angle just through like logicking with them. Like even this whole podcast, I've been talking about my experiences that like brought me to this greater realization. Um, so it's almost like um, God has used time to give me experiences that would lead me to him. But you can't force that on somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. And you can't, and you often can't approach these things just through reason alone. Mm-hmm. Like whenever I was debating with my ex-boyfriend about polyamory, I would like think I was making such a reasonable argument, um, but like it still wasn't getting through. Like there was like just some other angle, some like spiritual angle that like I wasn't going to be able to force him to see. So um, when that's the case, it's like you can just pray for people and pray that, you know, God opens their eyes and helps them to see. And it's not about you being better than them mm-hmm. or anything like that. It's just about you having a different level of discernment or uh, a different you know, angle to your judgment, um, of things like, like I, I often have said that, like, um, you'll see a lot of feminists who advocate for like sex work as they call it, I would call it prostitution. Um, and they'll say that it's like not a big deal and it's sex work is work. And we're seeing this, it's not super mainstream yet, but it's like kind of getting there and without a spiritual angle and like consideration of women's souls, it's really hard to logically refute that it's just right. Yeah. 
And so there's a lot of things like that where without the super, the, the like transcendental angle, the angle of what something does to your soul, it's hard to argue with people about um, certain yeah. things that I would see as bad that they think are fine. That's a really good example. Yeah. I've, I saw a video on YouTube a couple of weeks ago and um, the prostitute was explaining how her work is actually healing. It's, it's like, it heals the client. I mean, she had this whole thing worked out how it was more than just prostitution. It was like therapy for the client. Yeah. And you hear stuff like that a lot where one of the, I think one of the greatest deceptions um, as far as demonic attack and spiritual warfare is um, where things that are bad are framed in like a positive way. Right. Or like, like, um, yeah, things that you should actually be on guard against sound really nice, but aren't good. Like sexual liberation, that is great branding. It sounds mm. nice or, or mm. sexual empowerment. Mm. Right? Oh my gosh. That's yeah. Huge. Yeah. Like if you give it a name <laughs> and you brand, this is the power of marketing. If yeah. you brand it as something that sounds good, it can be hard for people to see past that surface level mm-hmm. branding to what it actually is and its, its actual results. Um, and that's, I think that's one of the greatest deceptions that we see in our culture is like positive labels and branding being slapped onto things that are actually bad. Oh my gosh. That's a whole topic that you could, um, you know, have, have you thought of having your own podcast and talking about each of these topics individually? They're so good. Um, actually, Amy and I are starting our own podcast. I think we have two episodes on our YouTube, um, and we're calling it the mystic sisters and, um, well, yeah, and we we're talking about like feminism and the media and culture and religion and all those things. So awesome. Yeah, oh, so we're not far wow. along, but um, that's that is <laughs> You guys are so creative and intelligent and beautiful and beautiful people inside and out. I just am so happy that I know you. Thank you. <laughs> um, anything else you want to add? Because, you know, one of the main topics of my show is about the transformative power of orthodoxy and, you know, how it's not just reading some theological books and um, going to church once a week. It's a lifestyle that heals us and works on us and transforms our lives. Anything you want to share to leave the audience with today? Yeah, I think that, you know, if somebody was thinking about orthodoxy and curious about it, Um, I would say that it is something to be experienced. Um, and I would encourage people to find a local church and go to a liturgy. Um, and, uh, that there are things that are sort of missing in the modern world in our lives that I think a lot of us detect and aren't really sure, uh, you know, how to address like the need for community, um, the desire to, aim for some higher good. Um, I think we all have that. And I think that orthodoxy has been the, you know, best thing that I've found to kind of fill in those gaps um, that the secular world, just the places where it just kind of leaves us hanging. Um, I think we, we want to have a relationship with God. We want to be good. Um, We want to feel that we're struggling towards the good Um, and orthodoxy can really help us and shape us. in a positive way. Beautiful. Any books? I wanted to ask you if there's like a favorite Orthodox book or podcast or anything you could recommend. 
I think that for beginners, um, particularly uh, women who are looking to learn about orthodoxy, I found that some of the books that people were recommending me were really heady and and kind of hard for a beginner. But um, I agree. (laughs) The book that I really liked, um, I believe it's called Welcome to the Orthodox Church, An Introduction to Eastern Christianity by Frederica Matthews Green. Um, is a very good one. Um, And also if you're coming from different Christian denominations, like Roman Catholicism or a Protestant background, it kind of goes through some of the things that you'll see in the church or during a liturgy that seem foreign and what do they represent and what do they mean? Um, And I found that to be a really good like primer for people who are curious about orthodoxy. And that's on audible.com too. Oh, perfect. She's great. I love her. I actually want to have her as a guest, hopefully. Oh, soon. that'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah she's, she's very wise. Mm-hmm. Okay, Julie. Well, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. And I told Jacob that when you guys are married, after a couple months of marriage, I'm going to have you on together to talk about married life. So, <laughs> if you if you want. If you yeah, we'll, we'll see how much I uh, can be helpful to others in that realm when I'm newlywed, but I hope so. <laughs> um, we're both learning and growing. So, but thank you for having me on. This has been really fun. Oh, thank you. And I love what you're doing with your podcast. I think it's really important. Oh, I'm just so happy to know you. And to my audience, I'm so grateful for you, all your comments and your likes and shares. You're helping this this project, this mission of mine grow. And I have my podcast now on Spotify and Google podcasts for the month of January. I'm uploading an episode every day. So by the end of the month, I'll be all caught up. And if you'd like to support my project, I have a PayPal link in the description. I also have Venmo. And if you can't support me financially, if you want to tell a friend about my coaching, they can message me on Instagram at a devotional heart. I am a life coach for Christian women. I support femininity, creativity, relationships, and online business. So send me a private message there. And until next time, God bless and have a beautiful day. Bye.